Section eight of On Being Negro in America by J. Saunders Redding. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section eight. I am an integrationist. I have been for a long time. It is not a principle that I arrived at through intellection. Until the past few years, I did not bring to bear on it whatever intelligence I have. I felt my way to it, just as some men, in spite of obstructing experience, feel their way to ideals of honesty, sobriety, and continence. Nor was the feeling of my way wholly conscious. It was rather like the action of one who kicks and splashes frantically to save himself from drowning, and suddenly finds that he has reached a shelf on which he can stand in the riverbed. His objective was not the shelf, but just to be saved. I kicked and splashed in all directions, and suddenly there I was. I was an integrationist when the communists camped almost nightly on my trail in the early 1930s, and lighted beckoning bright fires in the frightening dark of that time. I did not believe then, any more than now, that the moment the bars of segregation are lifted, all the white women of the South will fall into the arms of Negro mates. Many of my acquaintances gleefully profess to believe this, would just as gleefully declare that Negroes lynched for rape had been only unlucky in being caught with their always willing white paramours. They found substance for this opinion in both fact and fiction, which too loudly proclaimed the revulsive feeling of the white female for the Negro, and the inviolable purity of white womanhood. My acquaintances believe that Southern whites protested too much. And so, it seems, did the communists, or perhaps they did not, it could have been just a line in the carrying out of explicit directives on how to recruit Negroes in the eastern states. It could have been that they were played expertly on what they thought were the secret dreams of a young, green, mixed-up, and lonely man. I suppose all people suffer from these maladies, and especially from youth and early adulthood, and I had more besides. I had a severe case of negrophophilia, which alternately wrenched my heart with hate and love. I was confused about the direction of my life, and extremely doubtful, as I sometimes am today, of life's purpose. Whether naturally or through learning, I shrank from all but a handful of people, and some of these were a disappointment to me, and I have no doubt that I was a sore trial to them. I lacked social accommodation. I have never thought tolerance admirable as a principle either of adjustment or feeling, and I rejected it entirely for my friends. Dogs were to be tolerated, and crying babies, and strangers with whom one did not have to become acquainted. My friends were constantly not living up to my foolish expectations. My judgments were severe. I was continually breaking with them and rejoining them, but with no increase in understanding. I do not think I would have become a communist even had these deficiencies not been in me. But certainly, except for them, the communists would have had an easier time assailing my weak position on the extreme left flank of democracy. The wrong scouts came to reconnoiter, and they took the wrong approach. The first who came was a moist, sleazy fellow, fat and asthmatic. I had often seen him in the little restaurant where I took dinner. Frequently he would be there in low-voiced conversation with various people, men and women, when I entered. He always sat at the round family table back in the corner at an angle from the door and my glance would fall there first. There would be beer before him, and it was just legal again. 
and a dish of olives and olive pits and a plate of fried potatoes which he ate with his fingers though i did not think he was aware of me no one could be unaware of him even from my table by the window with my back squarely toward him i was conscious of his presence in lulls of dish rattling and conversation his wheeze could be heard all over the tiny restaurant one evening when i came there later than usual because i had waited for a cold rain to stop and took my place eric the german waiter told me that philip wanted to talk to me he indicated the fat man at the big table there was little possibility of eric's having made a mistake the restaurant had only a dozen tables and it catered to a limited and steady patronage of unimportant executives clerks and apprentices from the jewelry manufactories and a few plebeian graduate students like myself i do not remember ever seeing another negro there even though eric had made no mistake i was sure that i did not want to talk to philip but before i could put my thoughts into words and summon the courage to utter them philip was standing there he looked at me expressionlessly as he pulled the chair far out to allow for his pendulous belly and sat down this rain my friends are all late tonight he said you'll excuse me there was nothing questioning or tentative or apologetic in the way he spoke i was acutely embarrassed he took a piece of potato out of the dish he had brought with him and carried it to his mouth it was a small full-lipped mouth his hands too i noticed were small and very white though the nails and the knuckles were dirty in contrast to his moist flushed face what does the j in your name represent he asked i was taken by surprise it must have shown it for he blew out an indulgent laugh you wouldn't think i would know your name this was not a question either i do and he spoke it the sound of it coming from a complete stranger seemed to establish some kind of power over me i felt a twinge of fright even as if i were suddenly vulnerable in ways i knew not of how do you know he swung his head from side to side and his face smiled at me i know and i know more he said he called off items of biographical fact as if he were reading from a file card the year and place of my birth my father's name my brother's name my schooling an attack of scarlet fever i had had momentarily i half expected him to go into an account of monstrous crimes i had committed in some other and unremembered character it seems silly now for i know that to get such information as he had was an easy matter but then i felt that for some dark purpose i could not guess a million pairs of eyes had followed me since birth i do not wish to play up this episode nor to dramatize my reaction to it for what followed was ridiculous emotional anticlimax through the next talk philip had with me a week or so later his efforts to get on terms of easy familiarity dissipated my sense of being mysteriously overpowered and exposed i did not respond to the first name camaraderie not knowing his last name i avoided calling him anything i think my formal civility frustrated him and i think this is why in a kind of desperation during the third or fourth meeting he pulled out a folder of very detailed obscene photographs and handed them to me he laughed when he asked in pretended casualness for i could feel him watching me sharply whether i had seen anything like them before and weren't they the most amusing things and one in particular because he knew the girl had it a student at the art school he had some delicious friends he said and he would like me to meet them 
he said that there was one bonny brunette especially from way down in georgia but completely and i mean completely emancipated and without prejudice they lined up fast enough once they were really free he said and it only went to show what would happen to the race problem all over the country were it not for the strength and pressure of reaction there just wouldn't be any of it if it were left to the women i think philip was running way ahead of his timetable or to change the figure he had cast his net on the wrong side there was not enough weight to it in any case i knew later that there was quite a potential catch of assorted fish including a young college student who wore very thick glasses a french descendant politician who had considerable power in local labor circles and a very wealthy widow in her late thirties even then the widow was contributing generously to the south and some years later she became nationally known as pro-communist there were others too but i do not know how they had been approached nor how many were caught perhaps philip and those who joined him in subsequent weeks fumbled the assignment badly at least this one got away the approach to my intellect is not through my gonads one approach perhaps is through my curiosity and it was curiosity that teased me into going here and there with philip i wanted to see what kind of people these were i had listened to soapbox communists on the streets of new york but they had aroused nothing in me save vague speculations over such questions as were brooded about in those days what was wrong with our government did the rich and powerful think only to gain more power and reap more benefits from the exploitation of the working class what should the government do what could it do what was hoover doing that he should not do and vice versa i felt a certain shallow contempt for the emotionalism the unreasoning bitterness and the actless anger of the soapbox radicals i do not know whether it was because they were a cohesive motley of white americans negroes italians portuguese and french but i liked better the brazen self-interest of the radical workers whom i had seen milling about the shut-down what an ominous word that was blank-walled factories in southwest providence but i could not identify with them either they talked of violence and did violence as once when the police tried to scatter them in an implacable matter-of-fact way that repelled me i have never believed in violence i have heard negroes advocate it i once knew of a group of negroes who organized to kill a white man every time a negro was lynched they called themselves the quick cure club incorporated in grim parody of the ku klux klan they were to have branches in every principal city of the south though it was rumored and is still widely believed among negroes that the violent and unsolved murder of a constable in green county missouri in the nineteen thirties was the work of the black kkk i think the organization never really got started nor could i identify myself in more than a superficial way with the campus group of intellectual radicals with whom a common interest in writing brought me into contact they were enthusiastic and well-meaning but quite innocent and harmless they knew considerably more about john reed haywood brown and h l mencken than about marx lenin and the and the deviationism of trotsky they knew something about nietzsche too and they were learning Googleized something about freud but the german philosopher's will to power was not translated into political terms and freud's civilization and its discontents 
which had only recently appeared in this country, was simply a yardstick by which they measured their imaginary personal gripes against smugness and conservatism. Theirs was the rebellion of youth. They talked a lot. What they said was mostly brilliant nonsense, which had no more relation to the actual destruction of the bridges over which their parents had passed than a pyrotechnic display on a moonless night. Only one of them became a writer, a humorist, and a good one. His latest book now lies before me. Sensitive, talented, some of them wealthy, they turned out to be thoroughly conservative college professors, investment brokers, and lawyers who had no trouble making a peace with things as they are. My problems were different from theirs. The drive, self-preservation, anxiety, vanity, sex, the complete discharge of strength Nietzsche speaks of, were considerably modified by my negroness. Such an admission is embarrassing to make, but I recognized its truth even then. Self-preservation, for example, was not a galvanic drive in me, nor in other negroes I knew. I have written elsewhere that five of my closest acquaintances committed suicide in the span of six red and terrible years. Pride and vanity were excessive. Since negroes were assumed to be sexually immoderate, I made a show of strict asceticism, chastising the flesh in a way most unnatural to youth. What I did not recognize was that I was being forced into the narrowest egocentrism, into an involvement with self that was morbid beyond reason, and that only the lucky are able to sublimate. And this only partially, into group concern and with extreme luck, wider social concern. It needed not be said, and certainly not in the way of apology, that this is not altogether the fault of the Negro. It is the fault also of the American life situation, neither quite an accidental wickedness, nor a complex of impersonal coercions, over which both the individual and the group control of minority people is limited. The campus group of intellectual radicals broadened me. They stimulated my reading, my imagination, my sympathies, to the reading of James, Santayana, and De Unamuno, to whom Professor Dukas had introduced me. I added Nietzsche, especially thus spake Zarathustra, and Marx, and much else that I would not have come across in the ordinary routine of my graduate study. But I was not broadened enough to take what Philip and his circle offered. Had their first offering stayed on the level of the first parties I attended with Philip, matters might have been different. I could take any amount of talk, and there ran through the rapid-fire conversations phrases that, exploding like firecrackers, drew my attention. The political state, as distinct from the economic and social state, they were drawing such distinctions then. The omnicompetent state, responsibility in areas of cultural autonomy. Of course I had ideas as to meanings, but nothing they said really coalesced into concepts, I was not moved either to agreement or disagreement. I simply heard. In later meetings, however, I began to listen and to understand, but not what it was expected I would understand, rather the opposite. I began to comprehend that they talked like people who had a vested interest in a democratic catastrophe. It was not communism's strength and validity, its constructive and health-seeking activities on which they based their argument. It was on democracy's weaknesses. They rejoiced in the economic depression because they saw in it the beginning of democracy's total collapse. The ideal, they said, was security and freedom, and I agreed with this. 
but under your system they were talking directly to me and to hakley a young but grizzled silversmith apprentice there is neither they were too smart actually to make capitalism and democracy synonymous so i could judge only that this equating one with the other was a deliberate effort to confuse and i was confused and i showed it in childish exasperation at the way in which they pointed out with a kind of glib cold fervor every weakness every failure every instance of corruption and discrimination and injustice and how these affected one personally and especially the negro the inference was plain that in the omnicompetent state the service state which were equated these things would not be but when i pressed for proof of their inferences philip and the intellectual leaders of the cell withdrew into taunts and challenges and were not percipient enough to see how dangerously they threatened my self-esteem the idea of democracy was itself not particularly dear to me then but i resented the doubts cast on my inherited assumptions about it if anything i resented democracy for leaving me and itself so defenseless but i hated communism for putting me on the defensive my anger and frustration carried over from one meeting to the next for though their arguments were basically weak i had no answers to them after the fifth meeting i was certain that i was through with the communists and all their works but i did not figure on the prose-lighting passion of philip and honey this latter was one of the five women in the cell whom i had seen regularly at meetings honey was a cell nickname and it suited only her physical appearance among her colleagues at the city hospital where she told me she worked as a technician she was known as bronca i never learned her last name of foreign extraction austrian or czech i judged she had soft honey blonde hair worn in a long bob so that when she turned or lowered her head a wave of hair fell across her face it was a good face not pretty and decorated but well structured and strong with pale yellow eyes set under square brows she talked a great deal in a rather strident and insolent tone and she laughed a lot insolently too both her laughter and her talk seemed to come from very near the surface yet one felt that she had depths sometimes one was as hard put to follow the erratic train of her thought as to follow her restless vital movements philip and honey came to my lodging-house one night after i had twice failed to show up at meetings it was embarrassing to have them come there for my landlady though she had been born and had lived all her life in new england and though she thought that this was in itself some sort of victory or credit for a negro my landlady was only less suspicious of white people than she was of negroes who consorted with them even had they desired it my visitors could not have come in so i went with them to the two untidy rooms which honey occupied over a delicatessen in the oldest and a step from genteel section of the city there were just the three of us and over a bottle of very sour wine which was called dago red they questioned me about my absences i told them that i had been preparing for mid-year examinations which was true and anyway was i to consider myself obligated to be present at every cell meeting they looked at each other for a moment then honey laughed deliciously and said of course not and philip laboriously wheezed an echo of this in cell meetings philip was the centre but here honey had complete charge she led the talk into all sorts of trivial channels shifting restlessly in her chair tossing her head crossing and uncrossing her legs honey talked and talked her vitality and the wine were exhilarating she was profane and final in her judgments of people 
she jokingly accused philip of trying to bring into the cell some profound asses some absolutely untouchable unteachables like a certain sydney she mentioned who was positively she said a reconditioned pervert oh she was sure of it and faye harriston this was the wealthy widow who every day jumped into a barrel of peroxide and who for all her efforts at femininity showed that she was a conditioned hermaphrodite laughing gaily honey wanted to know what philip was doing recruiting people for his own pleasure was that what he was making of the cell a circle of lesbians and libertines unembarrassed and unsmiling philip only shook his head and after a time honey went on to something else the atmosphere was very casual very friendly and i was sorry when philip announced that he must leave it was my cue to go too and i got up there was a moment's hesitation before philip said oh but i'll be back you wait for me here i looked at honey but she was already reclaiming the hat i had picked up i thought she smiled mockingly at philip what honey and i talked about after philip's departure i do not know in my notebook the next day i wrote exactly what follows i wish i could make out a case of moral rectitude for myself but i cannot what i kept thinking of last night was all the possible consequences when honey came and sat on the couch too close to me i remembered all i had heard about parlor whores that they were bold and brazen and without discrimination and that they were bound to be diseased i had never had more than a dozen words with her until last night so there was no affection for me there was only passion and even this may not have been genuine i half wished it were or that i could think it so my feeling was that her object was to arouse passion in me while she kept herself out of it and under control she shivered and rolled her head against my shoulder and dug her nails into my thigh but i think that it was all faked i do not know what we talked about between times or whether we talked about anything but if she were outside it i was outside it too and i kept thinking that honey had some ulterior motive and that she was trying to realize it at too high a price i knew that she wanted me to have sex relations with her and i knew also that i would not could not dared not i do not think she tempted me at all really she just frightened me i did not see how anyone could go to such a length to obtain a result that in the long run could have almost no importance certainly i cannot think myself that important to the communists and suppose this were not her reason then what just sex i cannot trust a white woman that way no matter how willingly a white woman gives herself to a colored man if she is found out she will yell rape last night i pictured newspaper headlines such as i have seen many times and i thought of them referring to me black brute i did the right thing last night though maybe i did it for all the wrong reasons i fled though i knew i had done the right thing i was ashamed to see honey and philip again for i convinced myself that i had been naif and cowardly i did not go back to the little restaurant at the bottom of the hill once i had a note from philip and once he or someone very like him inquired of me from my landlady but i did not see him nor honey nor any of the people i used to see in the cell i am certain that honey laughing with strident insolence spoke of me as one of philip's untouchable unteachables and pretty quickly forgot me end of section eight